This is part two on James 1, 12 to 15 and some verses earlier in James 1. And there are two or three major issues before us. Let's read it. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But, here's the alternative to God being the active agent in temptation. What's the alternative? But, each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And here are the questions. It says that God cannot be tempted, and yet we know Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Same idea, same word, or Hebrews 2. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, we need to just give an account of the fact that though God cannot be tempted, Jesus was tempted. So, what kinds of temptation are not possible for Jesus to experience and what kind are? We want to ask that. Second question. It says, God himself tempts no one. And yet, the word for tempt is exactly the same word as test in the Greek. Trial, you see the word there in a noun form, same here. So God does try people, right? John 6, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test, same word, to test him, for he himself knew what he was about to do. So God never tempts anyone, but he tests them, and the same word is used. So somehow we have to make the distinction between what God doesn't do and does do, or here, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, same word, by God, offered up Isaac, or same thing here in 1 Peter 4, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Those are the same words. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. So judgment is coming from God. It's considered a test or a trial, but not presumably what it says God never does. He never peradzos anyone in some sense, but he does peradzo them in other senses. That's the problem we have to deal with. He, te he tries them, but he doesn't test them. Well, in a sense, all trials are te t temptations, aren't they? Every trial you have tempts you to be angry or unbelieving or, or sullen or some sin. 
And yet there's a difference in James's mind here, and we want to figure out what that is. And the third issue is, if God doesn't tempt anyone, then how is God sovereign over all things, including sin? And we know he's sovereign over sin because he governs the sins of people, for example, who crucified Jesus. Right down to the detail, we've seen that in Acts 4, 27 and 28. So, Father, as we tackle these three questions, I pray that you would guide us with your wonderful spirit and wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. God tempts no one, cannot be tempted. So let's try to draw what we Let's try to draw what we see here. Uh, let's call it temptation. And we want to know what that is that uh, God does, doesn't experience and God doesn't uh, pursue in people. What, what doesn't God do? And what didn't Jesus experience? So temptation in James's mind proceeds like this. Each person is tempted when he is lured and entire, uh, enticed by his own desire. So let's put desire here. Desire. And that desire, in James's mind, starts out as innocent, right? Because, because he's, he, it gives birth to sin. Somewhere along the way, this desire becomes an evil desire, such evil that it gives birth to active evil. So it could be hunger. I'll just put put that here. It could be um, sexual desire. It could be desire for money. And all those may start innocently. There's no, no, there's no sin in getting hungry. There's no sin in feeling a sexual desire. There's no sin in uh, wanting to get your paycheck so that you can pay for groceries. That's not a sin. But hunger may become gluttony, and sin, sex may become lust, and, and money desire may become greed. So what, what James says here is this desire starts luring and enticing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a bunch of dots like this, and we'll, we'll say luring here. So a luring happens, and this is my effort to understand. Somewhere along the way in this luring of hunger or sex or money or any other kind of desire that starts innocent, somewhere along the way it may cross a line which, which James calls conception, like conceiving in the womb. And at that conception, there's some kind of connection and union with the person that results in acts of sin. Right? And... Um, there is such a thing as evil desire. Put off your old self, Ephesians 4.22, which belongs to your former manner of life, corrupted through deceitful desires, or Colossians 3.5, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Out of the heart, 
comes these acts, and the heart can't be innocent when these acts take place. Somewhere along the line, a conception has happened which crosses the line from from hunger and sex and money to um, gluttony and and uh, lust and and greed. And so, by the time that happens. Acts are ready to be performed by those evil desires. And I think what did not happen to Jesus and and why it says that God tempts no one here uh, and cannot be tempted, what happened to Jesus is that this did not happen. In other words, this line was not crossed When Jesus got hungry for bread after fasting 40 days, he never crossed the line to gluttony or craving that produced acts of sin. So now we are right here. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. That's that. And sin, when it is fully grown, so there's this extension of of growing, let's just say duration here, And I'm going to say, without repentance. So if these acts of sinning go on growing and growing and growing and multiplying and there's no repentance, the result is death. Now this is the alternative, he says, to God causing Temptation or God causing sin. It says, God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Now, given the way he has defined it here, this is what I would say God does not do. God, at this point right here of conception, where an innocent or good desire crosses the line and becomes a sinful desire, God is providing no positive, creative agency there. His sovereignty here, which is real, is exercised by withdrawing or handing people over to what he knows will happen by virtue of their own desire at this point. Now, I don't have a full explanation for how God in his amazing, mysterious, active and negative agencies does that. We're just told God himself tempts no one. And then the temptation is described in this terms of desire proceeding until it conceives and produces acts of sin. And desire is not sinful as it starts. And somewhere along the way, it becomes sinful and produces acts of sins. And if that doesn't result in repentance after a duration of sinning, there is eternal death. Now, let's see how that maps on to what we saw last time when the issue is trial, not temptation. Because I said that trial here is the very same word for temptation. He doesn't tempt anyone, but he tries them. So what's the difference? Well, here's what we read last time. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, same word as temptations, 
of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we drew it like this. Trials begin with a tested faith. Something comes into your life, a sexual temptation, or somebody cuts you off in traffic, or you get cancer. Just anything could test your faith here. And if your faith doesn't give way to sin, you prove to be steadfast, enduring, persevering. That goes on in life, and there becomes a completeness in all that we need to make it home, and we arrive home with the crown of life. Now, you can see that this is different, right? So let's, let's put them together here, and I'll just sketch them underneath. Here would be desire luring, right? And it goes on a while, and that's the testing of your faith. So at this point, testing and temptation are overlapping, and they're both innocent. There's no sin involved. But there comes a point with the, as you put it here, conception leading to acts of sin. So when that line is crossed here, we no longer have steadfastness. We no longer have endurance and perseverance. Now the person has caved and has become sinful in desire and sinful in act. And now here you have a duration where there's becoming perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. There's completeness all along the way, providing what we need to make it home. But instead here, there is the duration of sin without repentance. And if that goes on, the result is death. And it's remarkable to me that death is the outcome here. Life is the outcome here. And therefore, James, in all likelihood, as he, con as he considered describing the processes of trials, had in his mind a similar kind of progression, but very, very different. One ending in life, the other ending in death. Both beginning with testing that would then become temptation here in his negative sense that God never does and cannot experience, and here becoming simply test and endurance all the way to the crown of life. So in answer to the three questions that I posed, uh, God cannot be tempted, and yet Christ was tempted. It's because this Negative kind of temptation is there's, there are different uses for the word temptation. And what Christ never experiences is the crossing over the line. Christ experiences objective desires. The devil brought him some. His own hunger brought him some. You can present Jesus Christ, the God-man, with objective 
allurements, but those allurements of, of ordinary hunger do not ever in Jesus cross over the line and become acts of sin. It's this whole process here that James calls temptation that God does not do and God cannot experience. And then the second was uh, God tempts no one, and yet he tries everyone because the trial proceeds along the line of never crossing this line, enduring And that's God's purpose and goal in the trial. Not acts of sin, but rather completeness and steadfastness all the way to the end. And how is God sovereign? At this point, I would argue, God does not do this. God does not bring us from here to here by an active work of creation or um, active positive agency, but by a withdrawing, by a permitting, by a relenting, by a, a holding back of his agency, knowing that this desire will cross that over. Whatever mysteries there are at this point in how sin comes about under the sovereignty of God, we have the testimony of James here that there's a difference between God's governing people all the way through trials, which themselves are kinds of temptation, and yet he never takes them through this kind of temptation, which involves crossing a line from good desire to bad desire to acts of sin.